All right, we are continuing today. If you have not been with us, uh, we're going through the book of Luke. And the chances are good. We're in chapter one. We've been in chapter one since September. We're probably going to be in Luke for a while, but I don't think that's a problem. I think it's a fantastic place to be uh, and to uh, passage of scripture, a book of scripture to look at. So uh, last week we talked about Gabriel's message to Mary and the kind of now and not yet dynamic of the kingdom of God. If you weren't here, you might want to listen to that on podcast. Uh, But it really, kind of how we live in that tension of Jesus' victory, Christ's victory over Satan and sin and darkness, but yet at the same time we still are engaged in the battle. And that's kind of a reality. We concluded with the encouragement, really, to be the change you want to see in the world. If you want the world to be a more loving place, and who doesn't, be more loving. If you want the world to be a kinder place, be kinder. You know, we, I say stuff like that, and I know we all go, yeah, that's right. But look, let me just challenge you a little bit this week. Be kinder. Find somebody that you... And, don't, and I'm not even talking about not being mean... I'm talking about being kind. Maybe extend a little kindness to somebody that you normally wouldn't extend kindness to. I don't know what that looks like. You pray, God will show you. Just be kind. Be nice. Be nice. Luke uh, continues with the account of uh, Mary's visit to Elizabeth, to her cousin Elizabeth, and their corresponding pregnancies. Uh, And then... Uh, with Mary's response to this situation. She offers up to the Lord a song of praise and worship. And uh, that kind of brings us to where we are today. So our title this morning is The First Christmas Carol. I want to pray and then we'll, uh, we'll get into it a little bit. Lord, would you just open our hearts and lighten the eyes of our hearts to receive your word today. I pray that your word would penetrate uh, our hearts in such a way that it becomes real and alive and transformational. In your name we pray, amen. So just quick review. Zachariah and Elizabeth were uh, getting on in years. They were well beyond the age uh, where they could uh, normally would be able to have children, Beyond that, we were told that Elizabeth was barren, and so even in their younger days, they were childless. Uh, The angel Gabriel shows up, appears to them, and announces that they're going to have a child, which is surprising, and I think probably to some degree unsettling news. And yet, sure enough, it doesn't take very long, much not too much later, uh, Elizabeth is pregnant. And after that, Gabriel uh, shows up again, and this time to Mary. And uh, Mary, as you recall, is a young country girl. She's engaged to be married to a local carpenter, kind of planning their life together. And Gabriel uh, comes and gives her an announcement that sort of disrupts their plans a little bit. He tells her that she too will have a child. Her child, however, will be conceived supernaturally, and will be the Son of God, will be the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. So that's also some disturbing and maybe somewhat unsettling news. But as you recall from a couple weeks ago, 
Mary's response is classic. I mean, just in terms of faith, she says, be it unto me. I'm your servant. Whatever you say goes. And I just love the fact that God challenges us and sometimes pushes us outside of our comfort zone. And Mary responds so well. At that same time, uh, the angel also mentions to Mary that her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth and Mary are cousins or second cousins, distant relatives of some kind, and that she is also pregnant. And that kind of brings us up to where we are in our story today. So let's go ahead and look at the text if you want to go to the next screen. At that time, Mary got ready, and she hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord would fulf- that, the, that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Mary, uh, when she receives this message from Gabriel, she, it says, hurries off. She goes quickly to go <coughs> meet Elizabeth. They're going to compare pregnancy notes, I guess. I don't know what pregnant ladies do. Belly bump, maybe. I, I, I don't know how that works. But they're going to go, and she's going to go meet with her. It's unusual... Uh, for Mary as a young single woman to travel alone. It's about a, if you look at the map in the back of your Bible, for those of you that actually still have a Bible, uh, not a phone. I don't know they don't have the maps on the phone, do they? I don't know. But it's about a 70 to 80 mile journey. It says through the hill country, so it's kind of back roads, country roads there, and uh, maybe unsafe, but Mary travels alone, probably under the protection of Gabriel uh, or whoever. She arrives and she greets her cousin. Doesn't, Luke doesn't tell us what the greeting is, but it's important. He mentions it three times over the period of just a, a couple of verses. <clears throat> but the greeting sets off a chain reaction of events. First thing that happens is the baby, Elizabeth's baby, who we know to be John the Baptist, leaps in her womb. Now, I'm not sure what that was like. I, I have felt baby kicked before. When Donna was pregnant, she would say, baby's kicking, and I would touch her something, and you could feel this little, kind of like that. Uh, but this says that the baby leaped in her womb, and I, I looked it up. I actually looked it up in the Greek. The word there is the same word as, like, jump for joy. So I don't know what the little guy was doing, but he was, he was moving around in there. And when he does this, Elizabeth is immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. And we are told, uh, we were told by Luke earlier, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit in the womb. So now both the baby and the mother are filled with the Holy Spirit. So when we hear the good news of the gospel, it's, uh, it's exciting, it's life-changing. It's, it's transformational in our lives. And very likely, and I want to say, it should be completely likely, that that would be accompanied by the filling of the Holy Spirit. You might recall at Pentecost, <coughs> Peter preaches the gospel, and a great number of people were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And when we hear the good news of Jesus, it, it, it should be followed by being filled with the Holy Spirit. The, I want to say this. Would, um, Don, you fell down on the job today. <coughs> Thank you. We hear the good news of the gospel. It should be accompanied. The earmark of a Christian should be to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, it shouldn't be an add-on or an option. Uh, it shouldn't, you know, we, we have these distinctions. I drove by a church here in somewhere around town lately. You are the best. Thank you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scold you. She always brings me a cup of coffee. Um, I drove by this church, and it's at the sign out front, you know, it said, a spirit-filled church. I thought, well, that's good, but what is a guy across the street is not a spirit-filled church? I don't know. But we make these sort of distinctions, and I don't get it, because being filled with the Spirit should be the normal Christian experience. It really is. It's not a weird thing or an odd thing. Um, I say that. I I will parenthetically say I get it. I know sometimes people that are filled with the Spirit can do weird things, all right? But it's not an anomaly. It's not not (coughs) an optional thing. Scripture teaches us that followers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the way it works. Go to the next slide. Ephesians tells us, this is very important. Through Him, we both, and I put both in parentheses because uh, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, but let's just say, through Him, we have access to the Father by one Spirit. So our connection to God works this way. It's through Jesus by the Spirit. That's how we connect with God. Through Jesus by the Spirit. Jesus is the way in and the Spirit is the way on. That's the connection. Without the Spirit, there's a disconnect. We don't have the same level of connection that we do in the Spirit. So the normal Christian experience should be to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's what Scripture teaches. And I just encourage all of you to... Be mindful of that and to allow the Spirit of God to fill you. Uh, We won't go into it today, but if you look at the different passages in Acts where people are filled with the Spirit, uh, it's in the perfect tense. Those verbs are always in the perfect tense, which means this, that it's an ongoing process. You're not filled once, you're filled repeatedly. It's, it's, It's continual. It's interesting, I think, here the text doesn't tell us that Mary was filled with the Spirit. I think we're left to assume that, but... In any case, it doesn't say that. But what, what, it does, what it does tell us is this. Mary's response, the response in Mary's heart to what's happening right now. Again, big picture, you know, the angel comes, she's pregnant, Elizabeth's pregnant, she greets her, the Holy Spirit, you know, it's just this thing happening. Mary's response to that is she breaks into this song of praise and worship, which is not unusual in Scripture. If you go back through Scripture, there's any number of places where People moved in God's life, and their response was worship. I just want to say that's how worship works. That's where worship comes from. We sang a song this morning that Tuck wrote that's a response of what God's doing in our midst, and that's what happens. God moves, and the response of God's people, that's where all worship songs come from. They're all a documentation of something God's doing in the life of those people at that time. That's why they're precious. And I want to say that's the right response. That, that, that when, when God moves in our lives, expectedly or unexpectedly, our response should be worship. I want to read uh, Mary's song, and then we will, uh, I'll comment on it a little bit, and then we'll come back at the end and we'll, 
we'll sing a little more, but go ahead. And Mary said, my soul, uh, it says Mary said, it's poetic, it's the form of a song. I don't know if she actually sang it right at that moment, but my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Go ahead, one more. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned home. Okay. Thank you. Good job, Stephen. Um, Mary's song, it's sometimes called the Magnificat. I don't know where that name comes from, but that's what they call it. But it's in what we call, uh, what is known as proleptic speech. Proleptic speech is this. It's, a, it's, it's using the past tense to refer to future events as though they've already happened. So she's talking about, it's, it's very much in line with the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God that we talked about last week. She's talking about, he has helped his servant. He has filled the hungry. God has done, these are things that God is going to do, but she's talking about them in the past tense as though they've already happened. So there's a reality, a conviction that these things are taking place uh, in an ongoing manner, and that's called proleptic speech, and it really does capture that essence of the kingdom of God, the now and the not yet of the kingdom. And Mary begins her song by giving glory to God for what he's done in, our, in her life. She says, he has been mindful of me, her servant. She's thanking and glorifying God because he remembered her. And this is what I love. Go ahead and back up one slide. Uh, oh, you did already. Okay, good, perfect. She, she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is, this is what I love most about this, is that Mary recognizes the hand of God on her life as a game changer. I was this way, but from now on, from today forward, this is the person I'm going to be. I was something in the past, but now I'm going here. The old is gone, the new has come. I am a new creation in Christ. Whatever happened then happened, but now I'm going here. And that's a reality in our lives as well. That should be the mindset we have. When God moves in our lives, we are changed. Okay? We are a new creation. Whatever we were really is gone, and whatever we are in Christ really is here. I want to add to that. Mary understands very really the dynamics of the kingdom of God in the sense that the hand of God, the work of God in her life doesn't end with her. So God's doing something in her, and she glorifies God for that, but then she says... And his mercy will be extended from generation to generation. God's working in my life, but it doesn't end with me. What God does in me is really for the benefit of others. We talk here about being blessed to be a blessing, and that's the dynamic. We receive what God's doing in our life so that we might then be useful to God in carrying that out in the hearts and lives of other people. The work of God is never an end in itself. 
It's always an opportunity to spread His love and His kingdom and His grace and His mercy to others. Mary's song moves from her situation to the big picture. She also draws here a contrast between God's will for those who are committed to following Him and God's will for those that are not. She says three things about that, that He scatters the proud, He deposes or brings down rulers, and He sends the rich away hungry. We talked about the kingdom being an upside-down kingdom. I want to ask a question, though. I, just want, I think I want to, for clarification, does that mean when she says this, that all rulers are bad, necessarily? He throws down rulers. Now, clearly some are. I mean, we can all, there's, you know, the Stalins and Hitlers of the world, and there's evil rulers, right? That happens. But does that mean all rulers are bad? Does it mean all rich people are bad? He sends the rich away empty. I, I don't think it does. I don't think all rulers are bad. I don't think all rich are bad. I was thinking about this this week. I thought about... Paul Allen, the uh, owner of Trailblazers, who passed away recently. And um, Paul and his business partner, Bill Gates, you might remember they started a little company called Microsoft. And it made them two of the wealthiest men in the world. And before he passed away, Paul gave away $2 billion to charity. Billion with the B. But that was only the beginning. He and Bill Gates also signed a document, a legal document, called the Giving Pledge. The Giving Pledge is a commitment by billionaires to give away half of their wealth to charity over the course of their lifetime. It was initiated by Gates and Warren Buffett. They said, we are committed to giving away half of what we have. We look at the inequity in the world today. You hear about the 1% and the 98%. These guys are saying, we want to... We're committed to bringing a little bit of that equity back. So Gates and Buffett started this, but they have since recruited 158 billionaires have signed the document. So, I, I mean, some of those people are probably worth $2 billion. Some of them are probably worth $30 billion. But just think about how many billions of dollars that is over the course of what will really be some of your lifetimes that they'll give away. I don't think those are bad people. I find that to be very very uh, charitable. So I don't think Mary's saying that everyone that's a ruler is bad or everyone that's rich is bad. I think this is what she's saying. I think she's drawing a contrast between people who look to God and know they need God and people who have things in their life that block that from them. And certainly wealth and power can do that. If you're wealthy or powerful, you can fall under the deception that I don't need God. I, 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 I've got this. I, you know, I can take care of myself. I've got it covered. I really don't need God. I'm just fine. But the truth is this. We all need God. There is no amount of wealth. There's no acquisition of power. I don't care who you are, how much you have. You still need God in your life. Here's the difference, though, and this is, this, is the, this is the truth, and this is the reality, and this is why I think it says this, and why those things can be deceptive. When you're in need, 
you recognize your need for God more readily, don't you? When you're in need, you know you need God. I think that's a warning to all of us, to be honest. Look, I don't think there's any billionaires here today. If there is, you're holding out on me. Um, You may not realize it, but comparatively speaking, we're all relatively wealthy, okay? Compared to the vast majority of people that live in the world today, we're doing okay. And, And it can be easy for us to, at times, allow what we have to cloud our understanding of our need for God. Amen? So I think we can be cautious for that. I was actually talking to Wally in the back last week after service. He asked me about my recent trip to Mexico, and I I shared with him, one of the things I love about going to Latin America is how vibrant people's faith is. You don't encounter kind of mopey Christians. I'll be honest. I mean, you know, sometimes we go... Their faith is so vibrant. Do you know why it's so vibrant? Because they know they need God. They know they need God. (coughs) We have to look to God because we have nothing else. And it just brings life. It brings life. I I don't want to lose sight of that. I don't want us to lose sight of that as as a congregation, as a church, to be reminded that no matter what, however much God blesses or doesn't bless us, we still need him. I got two applications I want to make to this, okay? Two applications. First of all, the kingdom of God really is an inverted kingdom. It really is upside down and backwards. The value system of the kingdom of God is directly opposite to the value system that drives the world that we live in, okay? The, the, the most insignificant people in this system are the most significant in the kingdom of God. And we looked at Mary a couple weeks ago as an example of that. Um, When you are or believe yourself to be strong in this value system, you really are weak. And when you are weak, God says you really are strong. It really is in God's kingdom better, really is honestly better to give than to receive. (laughs) Oh, it's one of those days. It really is better to serve than to be served. That really is a, the better thing to do. It's completely upside down. And, and I say that again to remind us, if we want to live effectively in God's kingdom, we have to begin to think that way. We have to be mindful of that. We have to view life that way. We, we have to redefine what success looks like. We have to redefine what is of value and what is not of value. We have to learn to see everything through the eyes of the kingdom of God. I would just ask, do we find ourselves getting caught up in the attainment of worldly success or are we focused more on just living in love? That's an easy way to define what value system is driving my life. So number one, the kingdom of God really is an inverted kingdom. It really is upside down. Second thing I think Mary's song does is this. I, I just, it's a powerful reminder to me of God's heart for the poor and the oppressed. Okay. Um, All through Scripture, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, we see the hand of God, the care of God, the providence of God, the mercy of God being extended to the poor, the oppressed, the needy, the hungry, the marginalized of society. And you cannot read the Bible with any integrity whatsoever and deny that. 
It's too evident. It's just plain. So what does that mean to you and me? I, this is what I, I, what I have to say about that. <laughs> There's a lot of talk today about, in the, you know, you read the news, whatever. What should the city do? What should the state do? What should the government do or not do to care for the poor? Local example, homelessness in Portland. It's epidemic. Anybody notice that? Ten years ago, 15 years ago, it's always the homeless, the poor will be with you always. But I, in recent years, it's, it's, it's massive. It's just massive. There's a lot of talk about it. What do we do? What is it, do we turn the old jail into a homeless shelter? What's the mayor? What, do you, what, is, what is the council? What do you guys do? What, should, what are we going to do about this? Well, can I be honest? Biblically, it's not the government's job. It's the church's job. Biblically, the people of God are called to care for those in need. If the church did its job, there wouldn't be a debate. And look, there are a lot of churches and a lot of Christian organizations that do a lot of good to care for those in need. I, I understand that. But I believe that collectively the church could do more in terms of caring for those in need and those that are hungry in the world if we chose to. We have to work within our own resource. We have to pray and, and seek God and what is our role in that. But I'm just pointing out the fact that biblically, biblically, all throughout Scripture, people are cared for by the people of God and called to be cared for by the people of God. And, and it's undeniable. You cannot read the Bible and not see that. If we want to be authentic followers of Jesus, I think we have to be honest with ourselves and ask, what is my role? What can I be doing that I'm not doing? And again, we have to work within the resource we have. Most of us aren't Bill Gates. But maybe you're supposed to give the guy in the corner a couple bucks today. Maybe you're supposed to take a meal to a family. I don't know what you're supposed to do, but maybe you're supposed to pray and ask God, what am I supposed to do? And I think if we're authentic followers of Jesus, we have to ask those questions. We can't hide from that and say, it's not my job, because the, the truth is, it is our job. So, so here's, here's the end game. Mary um, responds to the work of God in her life. And she does so by breaking into worship. And that's number one. We respond to God's hand in our life by worshiping and glorifying Him. And she moves in that uh, expression of praise and worship from thanking God for what He's done in her immediately to the bigger picture of what God's doing in the world, what he wants to do through her, and to the issue of justice. And I really believe that's the heart of God, and that's how this works. And I would say this, that every act of justice is an act of worship. Every act of justice is an act of worship. So that's something I think we should be considerate of as we especially walk through this Advent season. Okay? Why don't we stand?